0: Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Elia Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, the basis for our conversation this week is a recent column that you wrote for National Review entitled The Great Regression, the theme of which is something that you and I have talked about before, that uh, moral progress does not flow inexorably from material progress and that in certain cases, they may actually sort of be working against each other. Um, before we get to the modern context, you start the column out with some historical examples. Where can we look in history and say, as an illustration of the principal at work in this piece, just because you have nicer things doesn't mean you live in a better society?
1: Well, it became a very big theme in the um, early period in Greece, when the city state arose, and it's most prominently in Hesiod's Works and Days, but all and that was more about the transition into larger cities and the morality that was perceived by someone like Hesiod as as degenerative when people congregated in municipalities as opposed to homestead farms. But it's most prominent in the first century BC and AD as Rome. Be- transformed from an agrarian society to an international empire. And then when you look at literature, whether it's Republican literature like Horace's Odes or juvenile, imperial, or uh, especially Petronius's Satyricon, then you the, the theme in all of these, I could go on and on about the various authors who express them, is that Romans have too much time, too much leisure, Too much material uh, bounty and they have abandoned the traditional breaks on one's appetites. That means marriage, children, community, family, religion, tradition, etc. And so they were very fascinated with this, this paradox that, wow, they can get ice all the way into Rome from mountains and have ice drinks in July or in the case of Petronius, uh, somebody discovers some type of petroleum plastic and they call it unbreakable glass but the way that they conduct themselves is almost pre pre-civilizational they're tribal in their sexual mores and the way they eat and the way they dress etc so that's a theme that's it's very common in classical antiquity and it it goes in the middle ages and also the catholic church makes it has is prominent about the Decadence during Florentine Renaissance or Venetian Renaissance goes all the way up until the Puritans, Pilgrims, etc.
0: So let's talk about some of the areas of potential breakdown that you're flagging in this piece in the modern context. And one of your primary concerns here is an erosion of free speech in America. But your argument here, it's not really about free speech in the constitutional context. It's not for the most part – the government coming in and telling people to shut up. It's more of a kind of a, a social norm of, of self censorship and, and euphemism. I, explain this dynamic.
1: Well, I think most people thought that the wealthier and the more sophisticated we became, then certain things would be off the table uh, censorship, uh, lack of free expression. And because humans haven't changed, they're never off the table. So what's even scarier, I think, is that the traditional bogeyman of the left was always a dictator or tyrant, sort of a hard right, uh, anti-free speech movement. But throughout history, the the greater peril has always been a more insidious, more familiar, uh, less obtrusive erosion of free speech. So now we have a president who's a supposedly constitutional law lecturer, And we have professors who are supposedly PhDs in the humanities. And when we look at the United States in general, whether it's this euphemistic campaign about violent extremism or overseas contingency operations or workplace violence in lieu of actually graphic and descriptive adjectives and nouns, or we look at the university, supposedly a bastion of humanism and expression, we have trigger warnings, safe spaces, uh, etc., where What you say now can get you in real trouble because the left has adopted this, our noble ends justify almost any anti-constitutional means of achieving them, as it always does eventually. So if I were to say something in class and say, you know, I'll just give you one example. The Native American um, um, so-called white Indian wars uh, for the West were very problematic. It's very controversial. Each side had an argument to be made. I'd probably get in trouble for saying that because the politically correct and only correct exegesis is that white exploitive uh, neo-colonialist capitalists came out and destroyed indigenous people whose natural lifestyles were superior. And that's pretty much where we are now, and I think everybody feels that the university's laced with IEDs, some of which you don't even know where they are or what they are, but you can be blown up at any moment.
0: There's another very interesting aspect of your social critique in this piece, very different from the free speech one. But you talk in here about the tech sector of the economy, and you really think at some level, Victor, when you read this piece that they are sort of given a special dispensation vis-a-vis the rest of American business, don't you?
1: I do. I just say let's just for a moment imagine that we don't know much about the 21st century, and we just say there's a group of capitalists one of whom is basically cornered most of the retail business, uh, retail, retail buying business, consumerism, and that would be Amazon. And he's expanding into every a- imaginable media outlet, including the Washington Post. And we'll say that another person controls most of social media. That would be Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. And we'll say another one controls most of all of uh, Google searches, are most of the main way of searching the Internet, and that these people have a propensity to offshore, outsource money. They seek monopolies. They're not subject to the same consumer complaints that has characterized American uh, jurisprudence the last half century. So if I get drunk at a party, I go out and kill somebody in my car, They're going uh, American jurispr- jurisprudence says they're going to sue maybe the host of the party or the bartender as well as me if some if i go somewhere and my gun drops out of my pack and goes off and shoots somebody they're not only they're not only going to sue me they're going to deep pocket sue the handgun manufacturer for not having a trigger lock but all of us drive every day down the freeways and we see huge 20 ton trucks swerve all over as these drivers text and the obvious question is well why doesn't the manufacturer Will your capital entertain strategy the same degree help you win? We have liability to a cigarette manufacturer, a gun maker, an alcohol maker does, and they don't. They could put a trigger mechanism that said after five miles an hour, you can't use your uh, iPhone in motion. And the answer is that we don't consider them Rockefellers or Jay Goulds or Stanfords or the Robber Barons or the Gilded Age tycoons because – They wear T-shirts, they wear sneakers, they wear all black and get up on the stage, they're hip, they're cool, they're in the social media, they're left-wing, they're progressive. But their predatory capitalist propensities uh, and their exemptions from the reaction to that uh, make them almost an anomaly in American history. The, The left has basically said, we got robber barons, but we like them because they're on our side this time around.
0: Another one of the topics that you turn your attention to in this piece is race. And you characterize in here the current environment as – and I'm quoting you here – racial nihilism. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Well, we're so obsessed with race that – just take one example, and that would be the recent shootings in Milwaukee. If you have redefined police-suspect relations as such – that an african-american officer who tries to arrest an african-american suspect with a long criminal history and the suspect in that process of arrest turns around and points a handgun at the officer probably to shoot or kill him and that handgun incidentally is stolen and the officer to protect himself shoots and that incident prompts a riot, then you have to ask the existential question, under what conditions of that of a police-suspect interaction would not start a riot? Every single one will start a riot, if that can start a riot. In other words, more likely the policeman's going to be white, often the gun might not be found immediately, etc. Maybe sometimes the suspect doesn't have a criminal record, but if you have all of these pieces in that mosaic there, and that's still causes a riot i i don't think there's much hope for racial relations at least at this juncture and uh when i see people in the university and academia when what what were the conditions i should rephrase it that created an elizabeth warren or ward churchill or racial dozel people who were by any measure white but they created false racial identities For some reason, I think the reason was careerist, that is a thought that would have a leg up on uh, their competitors who were not so imaginative, and yet we're told that that's not racist or that uh, people of so-called people of color don't have any advantages. It's just anti-empirical. Or Here in California, when Asians reach a maximum point in the the student body uh, population, oversaturation I think is a the word they sometimes use and then we want to use their race to uh dial back the numbers uh, of Asians on campus and this is all on a la- larger landscape where it's very hard to tell our dna pedigrees now because we're an integrated and, and assimilated society so we don't we don't nobody can really say who is white or who is black or who's Latino? At least, if you're going to have these racial tribal categories, somebody should say, "Well, because here's the DNA test: we'll one third we'll this, one fourth on this, this one sixth this." In lieu of that, we're freelancing on With the our own because people are adding accents to California their, their all name. All they're turning on. their name from Joe into Jorge, Jorge Ramos. They're they're affecting accents the way the president and Hillary Clinton do to create a ethnic days. So. It's a mess. It's a complete mess, and um, we're at a point where we don't want to adopt the one sixteenth rule of the Confederacy to determine who is black and who is not, but we're really trying to do that ad hoc. And I don't know what the answer to it is. We just, I guess, race now is constructed. We say we are what we say we are.
0: Victor, I'm curious. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about the areas of American life that are, are polluted by these sensibilities, not just the racial sensibilities but all the ones that we've been talking about in this episode, and that list is going to be familiar to our long-time listeners. You're talking about places like higher education and the media, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm curious. Are there certain segments of society that you find uniquely resistant to them, places where this kind of thinking just doesn't creep in?
1: Um, increasingly – Not so. Um, I'll give you an example. The, The most distant place from academia or sophisticated awareness I can think of is the rural area in which I live. And so we have 50 years of very strict zoning laws and dog leash laws and dog licensing law and standing water laws that might promote mosquito populations. But we also have literally tens of thousands of people who've come from Oaxaca, Mexico. So if you were to drive within a 10-mile radius of my home, I think I could make the generalized statement that every single rural residence is in violation of either a housing statute, i.e. there's more than one family per house, Uh, there's Romex wire, there's porta-potties in lieu of a septic system, there's Dozens of pit bulls that are not registered, they're not licensed, they're not vaccinated. And the question is, why is that? And the answer is that the county authorities, the municipal authorities, the the state authorities, if you were to call and have them come out and regulate those violations, they would tell you, as they've told me, that this is well beyond us. These people are here in undocumented fashion. They don't use the word illegal anymore. And what do we? What do you want us to do? We don't want to appear in the newspapers. Or they tend to be Latino second generation, and they say, "Well, you know, why are you picking on these people?" Whatever the particular reason is, the answer is that because of their ethnic identification, and because they are they are deemed by the state government as underprivileged, then the law won't apply to them. That's not even getting into sanctuary cities. So it's sort of a joke out here that if you get bit by a dog. Uh, it 's not going to be licensed it 's not going to have a rabie 's vaccination and if you were to complain and if you were to complain you 're going to get a lecture to shut up and if you 're going to build something on your own property as I have, then these bureaucrats will compensate for their lack of enforcement in one place by really hyper enforcing enforcing any statute that applies to you because they've seen that you may have the money to pay fines you'll listen you're educated and that really creates sort of the cynicism that is fueling the Trump campaign a lot of people in the middle class think you know the wealthy have the money to navigate around rules and the poor have the romance from the distant wealthy to be exempt but so everybody everybody takes it out on the middle class to keep the system going whether it's taxes or regulations or enforcement and that creates a level of cynicism I haven't seen in a long time.
0: Let me close out on this. There's an interesting question sort of looming in the background here. The, there's a theory out there that liberal democracies are prone to get soft and, and that they need adversity to sort of build virtue. This is sort of the implicit theory, right, of the, of the greatest generation. Yes. And, and you will hear people say only slightly hyperbolically. There's nothing wrong with America that couldn't be solved by a recession or, or a war. Well, Victor, in the last decade and a half, we have had the biggest terrorist attack on American soil in our history followed by a couple of wars, followed by a pretty devastating recession. And to the extent that we've had a recovery, it's a pretty sort of treading water type of recovery. Those sound like, under this theory, the preconditions for a morally serious generation – that is not what you're describing in this piece. What what do you suppose has happened there?
1: I think two things. One, we're running about a half a trillion dollar trade deficit. And we've got about 400 million Chinese citizens that are now engaged in the world economy, primarily in manufacturing. Uh, and so we're importing uh, consumer goods that in real dollars are much cheaper than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And second... Under the Bush and Obama administration, we not only doubled the existing nation, uh, national debt, we almost tripled it. So we've we've expanded government to a level that we haven't seen in a long time, and we're importing cheap consumer goods. And even though the economy, as you say, is stagnating, we had that terrible 2008 shakedown, and we had a war, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. what it means is that people are able to find an existence – and this is – aside from technological progress that is just inconceivable. So when I go into Walmart and nobody speaks Spanish and they're all classified as impoverished citizens and everybody has a, literally, I'm not being Trump here exaggerating, literally most all have a EBT card and I go to get, uh, I walk by to rent a movie, well, that area is sold out and video games are sold out and uh, cheap cars, Kias and Hondas, and um, you know Hyundas are they dot the parking lot, and what i 'm getting at is that the way that our economy is set up to lease a new car means that you can get your hands on a consumer product that's only, that fifty years ago would be considered much better than a mercedes, and you can get video games and entertainment for just a fraction of the cost that you used to have, and you have a level of government we have three um, kidney dialysis. Uh, new clinics in my hometown, free medical care. I'm glad that we have them, but I guess what I'm saying is that there's a level of government support for the average citizen, and there's cheap consumer goods, and the technological progress being what it is, we're giving more computing power in the hand of somebody below the poverty line than the Rothschilds had 20 years ago. And the result is that we're creating an underclass that by any classical or contemporary standard outside the West is not poor. If you look at the size of their square footage, where do they have air conditioning, where do they have a car, uh, et cetera, and not just on their salary compared to wealthier people. On a a global standard, they're not poor. But – and that's why it's – We see these disconnects where we'll see a riot in Milwaukee or Baltimore and people will be stealing Jordan shoes, $300 sneakers. And yet you'd think they would, given the rhetoric, they would want to go to Costco and get the flour and the beans and the fruits out of the Costco bins. But they don't. And uh, it's it's, it's mind-boggling. And I'm not just picking on the poor. I think the same is true of the middle class that – in some ways, we're we're bad off, but in the other ways, we have so many temptations, uh, material temptations and appetites can be easily satisfied that we're just unthinkable. Um, I know that my grandparents were pretty middle class and they had a farm and we all went down on Saturday night because they invested in a color TV. And most people I know feel that you're not making it unless you have two big screen color TVs within your own home. And that's just that's not middle class. Those are people who are poor. I just got in a ride with a person that I went to high school with and he had a Kia, which is considered a low end car. But if you looked at the electronic dashboard and the level of appurtenances, it was so much better than a Mercedes or, or a Jaguar that I remember that a few wealthy people had. So I think it's people haven't sorted this out yet, but. That's part of the problem I guess we're getting at, that whether we have a, a war or whether we have a recession or whether we have a depression, there is so much government money in play. And the technology is spiraling at such an accelerated rate, and we're so globalized that we're getting material um, material opportunities that no other generation of history has ever witnessed.
0: All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.